as you are probably already aware, our oldest daughter, Caitlin, and her husband, Ryan, have two foreign exchange students staying with them for this school year. Bumi comes from South Korea, and Karme comes from Spain. And as you might imagine, for these eight or nine months, language has been a central topic of conversation. <laughs> they, they both came with pretty good English skills, and they're getting better with every passing day. But language is such an important part of our lives, our cultures, that obviously when you bring people together from different places around the world, it's going to be uh, a center of, of, uh, of conversation, if nothing else. And so it's been interesting as we've uh, kept tabs on them the conversations they've had about puns. Puns are sometimes pretty complicated parts of language, right? Using language in ways that, that uh, it's not obvious on the surface what you mean, but, but it makes it funny. And of course, you wouldn't get a pun in another language if all you knew was the definition of the words. I didn't realize, but every language has tongue twisters. What does a tongue twister sound like in Korean? You're not going to hear it from me, but that's pretty challenging. Perhaps the most difficult thing for them over the course of this year has been idioms. Uh, idioms, a word that has many definitions, but one of them are, are, are phrases that we use that mean infinitely more than the definition of the word. So when we say the whole enchilada, we're not talking about food, are we? Or if we say we're flying by the seat of our pants, imagine coming from Spain and hearing somebody say that in English. Flying? We're, we're standing right here. What do you mean flying? What does it mean, don't rock the boat? Especially if you say it and you're not in a boat. That must be confusing. Or to kick the bucket. <laughs> really? So they're learning that much is lost in translation because it's not just words and their obvious definitions, but we use language in some pretty incredible ways, much of which is lost if you don't know not only the language but the culture. But even if we speak the same language, we might miss what the other person is saying, the other person is saying, because of perhaps some of the preconceptions we have going into that conversation, some of the assumptions that we make about the other person and what they have to say. So not only are things lost in translation, but sometimes, even if we're speaking the same language, they're lost in conversation. And that was the case 2,000 years ago. Things which were abundantly clear and understandable after Easter Sunday morning's resurrection were not quite so clear a few days earlier on Good Friday. Join me in Luke chapter 22 where we're going to <clears throat> spend some time with one of these conversations. Jesus is about to be a part of four different conversations that took place on Good Friday morning. Conversations which will determine his fate. 
so one might say, these are some of the most important conversations that Jesus was a part of. It's going to be a busy morning. Let's start reading in chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel at verse 66. At daybreak on Friday, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had wanted to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. When Herod and his soldiers, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed, so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, 
and surrender Jesus to their will. The four conversations that Jesus is a part of this morning take place with the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, with Pilate, with Herod, and with the crowd. The communication process between two people or in a group of people begins with what we mean in our mind and what we say with our words. What we say and what we mean are hopefully close together. What's going on in our mind and the words that come out of our mouth hopefully are the right words to express what we have in our mind. And one of the things that Jesus expresses very clearly in these conversations are titles pertaining to who he is, who he knows himself to be. He is the Messiah. Messiah means one who is anointed by God to serve and to represent God in human leadership. Messianic figures included Abraham and Moses and David. They were all messiahs. Jesus was the Messiah. He was also the king of the Jews because kings were often messianic figures and Jesus saw himself as the king of the Jews. Another title that he claimed that day was that he was the son of man. The son of man was a phrase that Daniel used, chapter 7 of Daniel's prophecy, which had become a messianic name. So to say you were son of man was reinforcing this claim to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews. It means simply one who looks like a human being, but over the time of Daniel and those that were subsequent prophets to him, it became, uh, it was, became used to refer to one who was the Messiah, the one who would be seated at the right hand of God. Another title Jesus claimed in these conversations was that he was the Son of God, Son of Man, Son of God. Son of man is one who looks like a human being. Son of God is one who has God's qualities. So this was what Jesus knew in his mind, and this is what he proclaimed with his mouth, that he was the Messiah. He was the king of the Jews. He was the son of man. He was the son of God. You might look at at verse 70 in chapter 22 and verse 3 in chapter 23 and wonder, Because sometimes uh, Jesus' response to the questions that were asked of him were the things that he used to proclaim himself, these different titles. At the Sanhedrin, he says, you say that I am. And later with Pilate, he says something very similar. Uh, Commentaries point out that while this, in our language on the surface, might appear that Jesus is saying, well, you say that I am. But at the time Jesus was saying these things, those were phrases that were used to say, you're right. So when they called him the Messiah, when they called him uh, the Son of Man or the Son of God, and he said, you've said it, he's in essence saying, I am. That's exactly who I am. He was very clear about that. So while we know what Jesus meant and what he said, what the other people involved in these conversations heard was something completely different. 
Jesus' conversational partners heard the words that he used, but they interpreted them completely different in completely different ways because of the attitudes that they had about Jesus, because of the preconceptions they had about who he was, because of the convictions that they had developed as they watched him perform his signs and his teaching and live his life among a whole host of different kinds of people. The first conversation partner was the Sanhedrin, this council of elders made up of chief priests, teachers of the law, Pharisees, and Sadducees. It was the highest court in Israel. One of their many responsibilities was to guard orthodoxy, to make judgments about people's interpretation and people's behavior and how they lived out the law. They were able to render judgments about religious faithfulness. Each of the different groups that made up the Sanhedrin may have had some differences of opinion about certain things, sometimes significant theological um, uh, differences, but the one thing that they all wanted to maintain was their religious and their political power. They were the Supreme Court. The Romans may have been in charge politically, but they still had political clout. They still had authority, and they didn't want to lose it. They were big fish in a small pond, but they still wanted to be big fish. So what they were looking for was some self-incriminating statements from Jesus that might make it a, a, a airtight case that Jesus, who they thought it was a, a, a threat to their power, to their agenda, they wanted to make sure that Jesus said something that they just couldn't, he couldn't argue his way out of. Look at verses six and, 67 and 68. This is a key to this whole passage. They ask, if you are the Messiah... They then tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I were to ask you the question, do you think I'm so-and-so, you wouldn't answer. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where you say, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Or you have a conversation where you say, this is who Jesus is to me. You're hoping in the course of that conversation to help that person come to faith in Jesus. You're you're hoping that they will recognize that what you believe about Jesus is legitimate and valid and important, life-changing. The conversation Jesus is having with the Sanhedrin is nothing of the kind, though. They have come to the conclusion that Jesus is a blasphemer, that he's not the Son of God, he's not the Son of Man, he's not the Messiah, he's not the King of the Jews. And so they ask him questions that make it sound like they're interested in getting information, right? But what they're really looking for is something to incriminate him, and Jesus... Jesus gives them exactly what they're looking for. He claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of the Jews. The Sanhedrin found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. 
But now we're going to move into the second conversation that Jesus has. And they pass along to Pilate a, a different charge. They don't tell Pilate he's blasphemed. He's calling himself something that he's not. Instead, what they say is that he's, uh, he's instigating some sort of an insurrection, that he's stirring up the people politically. They tell the, the, the Roman governor that Jesus is encouraging people not to pay taxes to Caesar. They tell him that he's assuming the title of king. Now, Pilate is the Roman governor, He's the representative of the king, of Caesar. He's charged as the governor with keeping peace and for making sure that the Caesar, the king, is obeyed. He's, he's charged with putting down anybody who might want to take over the role of king. There's only one king in the Roman Empire. And so he's there to to put down any insurrection that's trying to replace that king. The problem is that Pilate had gotten himself into hot water as soon as he arrived in the promised land in, in Palestine to, to take over as, over as governor. He had done several things needlessly to offend and upset the Jewish people. He arrived with a chip on his shoulder and he was going to prove that he was the one that was in charge and nobody else was in charge. And so he had done some things to, to really get them stirred up. Well, the problem is that news gets back to Rome eventually. And he probably had received some warnings from Caesar that if he if he didn't maintain a better kind of peace, that he might be recalled, he might be sent back home. Yes, enforce the, the rule of Caesar, but don't needlessly antagonize people just to stir things up. So he was walking a pretty dangerous tightrope when Jesus showed up in his court. If he condemns Jesus... That means he's giving in to the Sanhedrin. He would lose face. He'd have to say, okay, you really have you know, the power to make decisions that he didn't want to admit. So he's not going to condemn Jesus. He would lose power and authority. But if he doesn't condemn Jesus, then it's not very many more days or weeks before word is going to get back to, to Caesar that this guy who is claiming to be a king has been let off the hook. So he can't win in this situation. He's looking for a way out. He finds no fault. He offers to punish and release Jesus. But then he finds out that Jesus came from Galilee. And Herod, the Jewish king of Galilee, is there in town. And he says, Hoo -hoo, I can just... Send him off to Herod, and this becomes Herod's problem, and I've escaped, I've dodged the bullet. The Herod that he's sending him to is one of three sons of Herod the Great, who was the king when Jesus was born. This is Herod Antipas. He's king of Galilee, but king only with the permission of Caesar. So he's, he's, uh, he's kind of like a puppet, I suppose. 
Earlier, Luke tells us back in chapter 13 that Herod had wanted to kill Jesus for some reason. So he's already got an attitude about Jesus. But neither Pilate nor Herod ends up being very hostile to Jesus, despite what Jesus is claiming to be. Primarily because to them, Jesus doesn't look like a revolutionary. His followers were only lightly armed when he was arrested, and most of them had deserted him. So what's the big deal? What's the threat? So Pilate wasn't too concerned, and Herod apparently isn't too concerned. As a matter of fact, what Herod is more concerned about is that he wants to see Jesus work a miracle. The circus has come to town, and I'd like to see the show. Except it says in, in Luke's gospel that he wanted to see Jesus perform a sign. A miracle is a miracle. But a miracle might also be a sign of something more important. So Jesus' miracles were not only amazing healings and calmings of storms, but Jesus' miracles were signs that he was the Messiah. But it doesn't appear that Herod is at all looking to see a sign that Jesus was the Messiah. It looks more like Herod is looking for some amazing miracle. Maybe he had some ailment and he was hoping Jesus might touch him and and cure him. Or maybe somebody in his court and somebody in his family was sick and he was hoping that Jesus would work a miracle and make their whatever it was go away. And so he plied Jesus with many questions looking for a sign. Jesus know exactly what his attitude was, and so Jesus doesn't say a single word to Herod. He had answered the Sanhedrin. He had answered Pilate. He doesn't say anything, just gives the silent treatment to Herod. The fourth conversation that Jesus is a part of is with the crowd after Jesus gets back to Pilate. Some people in that crowd were probably angered at Jesus because of the accusations that he was a blasphemer. Some of those people were Pharisees and others who didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And so maybe they were angry at him. They wanted blood because of his blasphemy charge. Some of them might have been followers of Jesus, and they were just disappointed that Jesus hadn't turned out to be what they thought he should have been. He came into town a week earlier riding on a donkey. Everybody's shouting and praising and singing songs and throwing down branches and, and, and palms on the road before him and their coats and so on and so forth. And, and they probably were hoping that Jesus at that point was going to flash the sword and take over the army and restore the order that they were looking for. But Jesus instead got himself arrested while he was praying. kind of a Messiah is that? One of his disciples took up a sword and started swinging it, and Jesus told him to put it away. What kind of a Messiah is that? So perhaps some people in that crowd were disappointed that Jesus wasn't living up to their expectations. Some of them may have been offended that a nobody from Nazareth came to town sporting airs. He's not a hero. He's just from Nazareth, and everybody knows Nothing good can come from Nazareth, right? Who knows why they were angry at Jesus, but they were angry. Three different times, Pilate says, I'm going to punish him and let him go. Three different times they say, no, we don't want you to release him. We want him crucified. Instead, give us Barabbas. 
Barabbas was the poster child for the kind of Messiah that the crowd was really looking for. He was bold. He was commanding. He was murderous. He was willing to do anything to release Israel from the bondage to the Romans. That's the kind of Messiah most of them wanted. And Jesus was obviously not that kind of Messiah, was he? I'm fascinated by Barabbas. Barabbas is a name that means either son of the father, Bar Abba, or it means son of the rabbi, son of the teacher, Bar Rabban. The early church Christian Christian church tradition tells us that his first name was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of the father, Jesus, the son of the rabbi. So Pilate says, which one do you want? Do you want Jesus Barabbas or do you want Jesus of Nazareth? Do you want Jesus, the son of the father, or do you want Jesus, the son of God? The names may be the same in the language, but their lifestyles, Barabbas and Jesus' lifestyles, represented two radically different ways of bringing about the kingdom of God, didn't they? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Son of God, came to bring about the kingdom by his death on the cross. Jesus Barabbas came with a sword and a spear to try to kill as many Romans as he could. So these conversations with the Sanhedrin, with Pilate, with Herod, and with the crowd took place 2,000 years ago. But this past week I realized that I might be able to recognize myself in these conversations. Maybe you'll find a way of recognizing yourself as well. In what ways do each of these people or each of these group represent a failure to be faithful to the truth, faithful to the integrity of their conversations with Jesus. How are each of these things present in my own thinking? In what ways do we block the transformational conversations that we could be having with God because of our own presuppositions and assumptions? Like the Sanhedrin, we are so sure of the truth that we think we under, the, the truth of what we think we understand that we're not willing to entertain a deeper, more nuanced truth. We know it all. That's what the Sanhedrin said. Have you ever said that to yourself? I got reminded this week in this regard of the Roman Catholic Church and how they failed to recognize the validity of the salvation by grace through works that the Protestant Reformation was proclaiming because they were absolutely convinced that salvation came only through the sacraments of the church. If you're baptized, if you're married, if you take the Eucharist, you're saved. That's all it takes. And so they missed the Reformation that brought about grace and faith and how much they're involved in salvation. Where might my understanding of God cause blindness to who God really is? 
How can my attitudes, preconceptions, and convictions keep me from hearing Jesus? Are we a member of the Sanhedrin? Like Pilate, we try to play both sides of the fence. God's purposes and my purposes. God's will and my will. We try to play both sides of the fence in order to keep from having to make a commitment. A commitment that might undermine my freedom, my autonomy, my position, my power. I don't want to listen to God because that might interfere with what I want to do. Like Herod, we only see the value of displays of spectacular power and misunderstand the sign of servanthood. So much of our prayer life is essentially asking God to perform a miracle, isn't it? Let's be honest. So often, overwhelming things happen to us and we ask God to work a miracle. And sometimes he does. Praise God. But sometimes that may not be his will. Are we only going to talk with him if he gives in and makes our miracle happen? Sometimes, like the crowd, we choose the phony Barabbas, the Barabbas made in our own image, with the ways of the world and power and murder, instead of the genuine article, the Jesus of self-sacrifice. So even though Jesus' Good Friday claims were vindicated on Easter Sunday, there are those who continue to miss the point due to our failure to let Jesus be Jesus. We may say Son of God and Messiah and King of Kings, but if these words mean something different than the way Jesus used them, then something's getting lost in the conversation, isn't it? If you are the Messiah, they said, let, uh, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Would you ask the question with me this morning, am I open to whatever God wants to say or to be or to do? Or do I bring my own agenda to my conversations with God? Am I open to whatever God wants to say, to be, or to do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you continue to communicate to us who you are. You are the one and only Savior. You are the one and only Son of God. You are the only one who has ever been resurrected from the dead. You are the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. You are the Good Shepherd.
You are the image of God in our world, the flesh and blood incarnation of God in our lives. Lord, we want to have conversations with you. We want to be able to pour out our joy and our sadness, our grief and our celebration. We want to be able to have conversations with you about the big and small things of our lives. We want to be able to come to you for help and we want to be able to come to you for answers and we want to be able to come to you for miracles. But we also want you to come to us with conviction. We want you to come to us with assurance. We want you to come to us with challenges. We want you to come to us and cause us to become more and more like you. We want you to come to us to get us out of our rut, to get us out of our assumptions. We want you to come to us, Lord Jesus, and speak truth to us. We thank you for the truth you spoke to us, perhaps as a child or a teenager when we were saved. We thank you for the truth that you spoke to us when our first children were born and we began to see the world through the eyes of a father or a mother. Lord, we, we thank you for the truth that you have spoken to us in college and Bible studies and vacation Bible schools. Lord, we thank you for all that you have revealed to us, all that you have taught us, all that you have caused to become a part of who we are up to this point in our lives. But Father, we know that there's more. Jesus came to lead us into all truth. The Spirit of God has come to lead us into all truth. Deeper applications of truth to our lives and our habits and our families and our workplaces and our schools. Lord, we believe that you have come to help us to continue to grow up. Even if we're 75 years old, Lord, you want us to continue to grow up. And Father, we confess that oftentimes we think we've learned enough. We think we know it all. We think that there's nothing new for you to teach us about life. Lord, we don't want to be the Sanhedrin. We don't want to be Pilate. We don't want to be Herod. We don't want to be that crowd. So Lord, as we pray, Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts that we don't put you in a box and silence your voice. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.